All right, podcast family, here's your clinical question and your potential dilemma. You're doing a fetal anatomical survey, okay? Let's say it's 20 to 22 weeks. And when you look at the fetal renal system, you measure the fluid, the fetal urine inside the kidney. Well, you actually find that it's about six millimeters. Remember, we're at about 20 to 22 weeks. Is that normal? Well, in this podcast, we're going to talk about that. We're going to cover renal pelvic dilation or pyectasis. Do you need chromosome analysis for this? And what do you do with this finding? Let's cover that information now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practices because medicine moves fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Renal pelvic dilation refers to excessive dilation of the fetal intrarenal collecting system. Now, people call this either pelviectasis or pileectasis. I think pelviectasis is kind of weird, so I usually use pileectasis, and I think that's what most people use. Or you could just refer to it as a descriptive term, renal pelvic dilation, and stop trying to be fancy. All right. Well, either way, fetal urinary tract dilation is defined as the anterior posterior renal pelvis diameter of greater than four millimeters between 16 and 27 weeks of gestation and greater than seven millimeters at greater than or equal to 28 weeks of gestation. So remember those numbers. So let's do that in reverse, okay? Because that's mild urinary tract dilation. In other words, what's normal is an anterior-posterior renal pelvis diameter less than 4 millimeters between 16 and 27 weeks and less than 7 millimeters at greater than or equal to 28 weeks. So anything greater than that is defined as fetal urinary tract dilation. So when we're talking about fetal renal pelvic dilation, remember that there's two different times here between 16 and 27 weeks. And the reason that it starts at 16 is because that's really when you can start measuring that fetal renal pelvic area. Otherwise, it's just too small and you can't really get a measurement. So it's between 16 and 27 weeks and then greater than 28 weeks. So in both of those camps, fetal pelvic dilation is broken up into either mild, moderate or severe findings. Between 16 and 27 weeks, severe renal pelvic dilation is greater than 10 millimeters. And greater than 28 weeks, because it's a bigger system, it's greater than 15 millimeters, which defines severe dilation. Here's how to measure this correctly. Proper caliper placement occurs at the interior margin of the renal parenchyma, measuring across the widest portion of the fluid-containing renal pelvis. Renal pelvic dilation can also be assessed in a coronal plane, which aids in the identification of caliectasis. Additional ultrasound findings that contribute to prognosis and that should be reported with a finding of renal pelvic dilation include those indicative of associated congenital anomalies of the kidney and anything else that affects the urinary tract. These are called C-A-K-U-T, or the CADET phenomenon. These are congenital anomalies of the kidney and urinary tract, or C-A-K-U-T. Another thing to look for is peripheral calial dilation, abnormal appearances of the renal parenchyma, and any dilated ureters that could point to hydronephrosis in addition to dilated renal pelvises. Okay, so what are we supposed to do if we find this? Well, we're supposed to look for any other associated abnormalities. 
although mild fetal pelviectasis is most often incidental and is typically benign, it's a common and nonspecific finding that can also be associated with some genetic and some structural abnormalities. Isolated mild urinary tract dilation in the second trimester has been reported to carry a likelihood ratio of about 1.6 to 2.7 for trisomy 21, although experts actually debate that association. So that's kind of controversial. So remember, it's always a good idea that if you find this as an isolated finding, number one, reassurance of the parents is key, but also don't forget to check back to see if they had some aneuploidy screening. Now, progressive, moderate, or severe urinary tract dilation is more commonly associated with either vesicoureteral reflux or the cadet phenomenon, or it could also be something like a duplicated collecting system. So if you find that it's in the severe range, you've got to follow these up to make sure that nothing else pops up in the anatomy scans. Well, you should be thinking, now, wait a minute, do I need to send chromosomes for this? Because any employee screening is just screening. But do I need to get true microarray analysis? Or what do I do with this? Well, fetal hydronephrosis or fetal renopelvic dilation is most commonly an isolated finding. So that's your clinical pearl. If no further abnormalities are noted on ultrasound and the family history is unremarkable, then SMFM says that it's reasonable to perform no genetic evaluation beyond the standard aneuploidy screening. Now, because of the association with Down syndrome, remember that's somewhat controversial, then counseling should occur in the context of an individual's a priori risk of trisomy 21 based on maternal age, previous screening results, and additional ultrasound findings. Now, if there are additional anomalies or if there's consanguinity or if a family history that suggests a specific condition, then diagnostic testing with chromosomal microarray analysis should be offered. Remember, most are performing chromosomal microarray and getting away from traditional just karyotype because microarray analysis, well, it's just better. Now, remember, though, as good as CMA or chromosomal microarray analysis actually is, it does not detect single gene disorders. So if you're concerned about that, then you have to do a gene panel testing or maybe exon sequencing because those provide much more detailed information than CMA if you're concerned about those issues. Okay, now let's get into differential diagnosis of these things. The differential diagnosis of fetal pelvic dilation or hydronephrosis includes either a normal variant or a physiological variant, or it could be a pathological cause. That's kind of broad, right? I mean, it's either normal or it's not. I'm sure you could have told me that at the beginning of the podcast. But here's the important issue. Some physiological things include things like vesicoureteral reflux, but some pathological issues could be like obstructive uropathy. Obstructive causes include those that can be at the level of the ureter, like obstruction of the UPJ, or if it's in a female fetus, it could be a prolapsed ureteroceal or a duplicated system that's prolapsed, a lot rarer, but it's possible. Now, the most common finding is that this happens in a male fetus, and it's due to obstruction at the bladder outlet due to posterior urethral valves. Now, this occurs, again, mainly in males, and it can also be associated with a keyhole-shaped bladder. So again, if you have fetal pelvic dilation and it's a boy, it's a male, then make sure to look at the bladder because if it's keyhole-shaped, then that points to posterior urethral valves. 
Much rarer causes of fetal urinary tract dilation include urethral atresia or megacystic microcolon and intestinal hypoperistalsis. Yeah, try saying that again. All right, let's do it. Megacystitis, microcolon, intestinal hypoperistalsis. That's a very rare syndrome. We're not going to get into it now, but just know that the most common things are common. Well, we're moving on. Let's get into pregnancy and delivery management. Given the high likelihood of resolution when mild urinary tract dilation is noted, especially in the second trimester, a single follow-up ultrasound in the third trimester of pregnancy at about 32 weeks is recommended. Remember, we're talking about mild cases. Normalization of the AP renal pelvic diameter suggests no further need for follow-up beyond routine OB care. But fetuses with moderate or severe urinary tract dilation and those with additional findings like the Cadet syndrome warrant closer evaluation and surveillance. This can include follow-up ultrasound at four to six-week intervals or even sooner if it's indicated. Now, these patients may also benefit from prenatal consultation with a pediatric urologist or even nephrology just to come up with some postnatal plans. Timing of delivery should not be affected by the presence of hydronephrosis. Now, let's stop there for a minute because I remember during the oral boards, I asked that question once. You know, when would you deliver a baby with fetal renal pelvic dilation? I said, ah, oh, it's got to be out of 34 weeks. It's 34 weeks, no question. Really? Well, where did that come from? Because that's just not the case. Remember, timing of delivery should not be affected by the presence of hydronephrosis because preterm delivery has not been demonstrated to improve outcomes. The presence of hydronephrosis should not alter the mode of delivery either. That should be based on the usual obstetrical or medical indications. And as we wrap up, a quick word about prognosis. For fetuses with mild antenatal hydronephrosis, the risk of postnatal pathology still is around 10 to 15%, but it increases around 20 to 45% and anywhere from 50 to 80% for moderate and severe hydronephrosis. Although the incidence of postnatal vesicoureteral reflux appears constant among fetuses with any degree of hydronephrosis, the likelihood of postnatal obstructive uropathy or abnormal renal function and the need for subsequent surgery does increase with the degree of dilation and with the presence of additional findings, especially if Cacket syndrome is suspected. Here are the clinical pearls as we cross the finish line. Remember that enlargement of the AP renal pelvic diameter beyond the gestational age-specific limits of less than 4 millimeters between 16 and 27 weeks, which is normal, and less than 7 millimeters at greater than or equal to 28 weeks indicates a need for a thorough evaluation of the fetal genitourinary system. If genetics has not been done, it's a good time to offer something like cell-free DNA, especially if they're out of the traditional time frame of something like a quad screen. Follow-up ultrasound examination should be performed to assess for any persistent or progressive renal dilation. Isolated mild pelviectasis in the second trimester does warrant a single follow-up ultrasound at about 32 weeks, but those that have more severe dilation need follow-up much sooner. 
most patients can be reassured that the prognosis is favorable, with 85 to 90% having normal postnatal outcomes. But in cases of moderate or severe hydro, remember to include your pediatric urologist or your pediatric nephrologist so that they can have these discussions even before delivery occurs. As always, thanks for being part of our podcast family, and we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls. Mm-hmm.